Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new movie review, and it's not about Halloween, as you can tell from the title, but we're in the final months of 2018, and live-action comic book properties are everywhere. This year saw the release of a Black Panther movie that has fans clamoring for Oscar in consideration for that movie. While next month we'll see Aquaman on the big screen and the world over is hyped beyond belief. While on the small screen, Daredevil is having fistfights with both Kingpin and Bullseye, even if the latter wasn't officially given that name in that show. Finally, somewhere else in the Elseworlds, we have our first live-action Batwoman coming to life. All these examples and countless others over the past 40 years wouldn't be possible without one movie. A touchstone event that changed both movies and comics forever. Superman the Movie was released in 1978, directed by Richard Dick Donner, starring Crystal Reeve, Marlon Brando, Margot Kidder, and Gene Hackman. Now, with a movie of this magnitude, I need to call him the big guns. And he is one-third of the power trio known as Disorder. And much like another power trio, he's like the Neil Pert of nostalgia. Mr. Michael Lyons, welcome to the show. Hey, Tim. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. And uh, good to not only be here to talk about this movie, but good to be on with a fellow Long Islander as well. Yes. Uh, peek behind the curtain, people. Uh, as as we're recording here, we spent like the past like 25 minutes just talking about uh, – Long Island itself just kind of getting to know each other. So it was, we even joke like, all right, how long is that going to go before we actually start the show? <laughs> that could have been a whole episode, I think. I, I mean, like, who knows? Maybe, like, <laughs> it will just, like, we'll have, if people really enjoy that, and, like, because so many people love how you tell your stories on Disorder about your history of seeing these movies here on the island. Of, and so maybe one day we'll just do a, just a Long Island story and just see how the, movies being experienced uh, has changed over the past like couple of years and such so maybe one day we'll do that oh i would love that you know i would love that we'd have two <laughs> listeners you and i we know that oh for sure <laughs> <laughs> if we're not being entertained by what we're making then why are we making it in the first place i think that's i think it's a big that's question right, right yeah. there but as we talk as i said before we're talking about superman the movie for the 40th anniversary so let's jump into that right now <laughs> Okay, and so, Michael, I'll have you start off the show first by asking you a question before we get into the movie. Did you have any experience with the character Superman before you saw this movie? You know, I think like like any good geek, I was into uh, comic books uh, prior to Superman the movie coming out. Um, I, I will say this and hope that I don't lose my good friend Andy or anybody over at Holy Backcast, but growing up, I was always more into the Marvel universe than the dc universe i don't have any um dislike at all of, of the dceu i mean I, I i love them both but marvel was just the the comics that i gravitated toward but i did of course read 
the Superman comics. And I also remember a lot about Superman from my dad because my dad had grown up um, with the Superman comics as well. And I kind of peripherally, before the movie came out, I peripherally remember the George Reeves uh, TV show in reruns. Um, but I, I didn't pay much attention to it until after uh, the movie came out. But what I remember most before Superman the movie came out was that this was a big deal that they were making uh, this movie. I remember hearing about it, you know, from my dad and from, you know, friends and family members who would read about it in the paper. Um, and even seeing that first poster of just the silver Superman logo with the rainbow going through it, there was just a lot of excitement over the fact that, you know, the character of Superman was going to be brought to the big screen in this big way. Well, uh, allying yourself with the Marvel fan base, well, I'm sorry. I guess our, I guess our friendship must end here. It, we had a good run here, but I guess this is how it's going to have to end. No, I, I, I realize it's not, the, it's not the, the, what is that, the smartest thing to say on a podcast where you're talking about Superman to say that you're a, Mar a Marvel fan. But um, I will say, and kind of just break the spoiler wall now, um, even – with aligning with Marvel as I do, Superman the movie is my favorite superhero movie of all time. So I'll just put that out there. Backpedaling. I see what you're doing here. No, no, no. It's okay, everybody. You're allowed to like whatever fan, whatever fandom you have. You're allowed to have that. It's okay to like them all. I mean, I think the I think it's more fans that perpetuate that there must be a constant battle between the two yeah. of them. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, the late great Stanley even had like even during the time of like the big rivalry and he would always refer to DC as their our distinguished competition. That's right. Whenever in his, I think uh, in his probably his Stan soapbox uh, hmm. letterings and everything, but you never saw like any like the, the Fleischer cartoons or anything uh, that ilk. You know, I didn't, but um, because they weren't so readily available when I was younger, I do remember, um, one Christmas, I got the book by um, film historian Leonard Maltin. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Of Mice and Magic, which is a great book, and I think it's still out there if you ever want to um, find it. And it was about the history of the animated cartoon. And he had a different chapter on each studio, and he had one chapter on Fleischer. And I knew about Popeye and Betty Boop. And then I remember turning the page and seeing a picture, a still from a Superman cartoon. I was like, what is this? I didn't even know that it existed. And it was, it was like years later that I finally saw one of those, uh, one of those cartoons, which I love. Um, and I think those had slipped into the public domain for a while. And I found them eventually on VHS. Um, and, uh, I just loved them. I loved the look of them and they were very like rotoscoped, like traced over live actors. So I just, I love that look, but, um, Growing up, those were like, uh, at least when I was growing up, those were like the Lost Ark of the Covenant trying to find those cartoons. Yeah, because they were nothing like, like you had mentioned, they were completely different from Popeye and how they're constructed and how they were laid, how the panels like were, were kind of laid out and the the act of Superman throwing a punch was very different from how Popeye would throw a punch. And like the one, I guess like the probably the most famous one of them is like the Mechanical Monsters, yeah, like, what would it be like to have Superman punch a fridge? Like, well, how would you try and think about how would you animate something like that? 
Yeah, they were really very groundbreaking for their time. A lot of what the Fleischers did was very groundbreaking, but the Superman cartoons in particular were definitely. Oh, for sure. And, of course, Batman the Animated Series fans should know that a lot of that, the style of that TV show was based off the Fleischer cartoons. So without Superman, you wouldn't have, some would say, arguably one of the best animated TV shows ever. So Mm. people who who are Batman purists and do not like Superman – just think, one of your favorite iterations of Batman wouldn't have happened without Superman coming first, just saying. But, and when did you first see Superman the movie? Uh, I guess this is, this is where I go all disorder on the oh, podcast. Boy. And, and so I'm, I'm going to stoke my pipe and put, you know, put another log on the fire. Everybody can gather around. So um, I saw Superman the movie New Year's Eve night like i guess you know like late afternoon evening of 1978 when it first came out my dad took me um took me to the smithtown movie theater in smithtown new york so um and tim keep me honest but i believe the smithtown movie theater is still there i think it's like a community playhouse yes it uh, is now um and it's that was a and it probably still is just a beautiful theater inside the the architecture and the design and everything in that theater is just really Really cool. I think um, my dad had told me that they that that theater showed silent movies. Like I think at that point in 1978, the theater had been around for about 40 or 50 years. Um, but I remember uh, waiting online because well before the days of Fandango and pre-order tickets, um, the line stretched around the corner of the Smithtown Theater, and it was freezing cold, and um, there was real excitement among everybody waiting to get in to see. Superman the movie, um, and everyone was talking online and really looking forward to it. And then we get closer to the theater, and oh, there's the poster. We're almost inside, and and that excitement carried through the whole movie. Seeing the whole movie, this this came out about I guess a year and a half after Star Wars, and it was for me, um, it was that same feeling that I got seeing Star Wars. This was just kind of a communal experience of. Uh, the audience really responding to this solid story, um, laughing, applauding, just really invested in the in the characters. And when you left, you had the feeling that you saw something really special. And I still have those memories uh, to this day of seeing uh, Superman and, and just, you know, th- there's very few movie going experiences that are like that. I think we'd see it several years after Superman with a lot of the Steven Spielberg and George Lucas movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. And, and I, I think Superman is a lot like those movies in that it's just a really special movie going experience. And I also remember the Smithtown movie theater sold programs, these these little programs. And God, I wish I still had mine now. But I remember buying one of those when I left and I just poured over that. Uh, when I got home and we mentioned the George Reeves uh, TV series and Channel 11 WPIX in New York, I guess, to kind of capitalize on the Superman um, mania that was around at that time. I think that January after it was out, they showed reruns of the old Superman TV show in the afternoon. And my friends and I would run home after school to see that because it was the only way we could see Superman in, in any iteration because it was long before the days of going to see a movie multiple times you know you went to see a movie once 
maybe if you were lucky, you went to see it again somewhere down the road. But otherwise, you just, you know, waited until someday it came on cable. Um, so I just I remember the excitement for Superman um, continuing all through that winter uh, as well. So that's my memories of Superman, the movie. Very nice. And yeah, it's after Star Wars. It's the next big sci-fi adventure movie. I mean, it became part of the cultural lexicon going forward. I mean, there, there's certain movies like you had Jaws in 75, which obviously invented the blockbuster. You have Star Wars in 77, along with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You have Superman in 78. In 79, you have Alien. And then how science fiction movies would change afterwards. And, of course, comic book movies and Superman had sequels in 1989. You eventually had Batman and all the movies and TV shows that came out because of the success of that and so on and so forth. But it, if it wasn't for Dick Donner, who he refers to himself as Dick Donner, I'm not just trying that to be mean or anything, but like when you ever hear Richard Donner on a commentary, he's like, hello, my name is Dick Donner, and then he goes into the commentary. And so I'm going to be referring to him as that going forward. Um, you have filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, John Favreau, Brian Singer, and... And they would have said like that, or and Patty Jenkins like they wouldn't be doing what they would with these comic book characters if it wasn't for Dick Donner and what he did with this movie. And going back to what you were saying previously, yes, the Spittown uh, movie theater is now the Spittown Performing Arts Center. Hmm. And like what they have up on the docket for the next couple of days is a uh, White Christmas the musical. Is that oh, very what, cool? Yeah, that's what's performing there, and that's actually it's funny enough. Uh, I got out of work a little bit later than usual on five, around 5 o'clock to this evening, and I actually went to Smithtown because that's where my local comic book shop is actually up the – it's right off Main Street, um, Fourth World Comics. And uh, be, and I just find it funny just because uh, my friend Nikki's birthday is this weekend, so I got her a comic uh, that I think she would like and a gift certificate because I'm like, I don't know which runs she's in the midst of right now, so do you know what? I'll be safe. I'll just get a gift certificate. It'll be fine. I just find it funny. We'd end up talking about that town here on the show. That That is funny. Yeah. <laughs> I saw many a movie there. Smith, good old Smithtown movie theater. Mm-hmm. And my history with Superman is much like, um, I knew that I, cause I had heard my cousins uh, in upstate New York had a copy of it and it had that look that the, the poster you described with the, the, the logo with the rainbow shining through it. And I'm like, okay, that's Superman the movie. And mm. I, I heard like, oh, the people who had, uh, who made the Godfather had ha- hand in making that. And I knew how respected that movie, the God, the Godfather series was, even at a young age. So I had, I already put the Superman the movie on an altar. Like, okay, that's something to be taken very seriously. And I must have saw it maybe when I was like seven or eight years old for the first time, and maybe because I was just a little bit maybe a tad young for, I guess I had seen movies that are a little bit faster paced. So I guess waiting an hour to see finally Superman fly and in as being heroic was maybe a tad long for me as a child. And so I didn't go back to see it as often as I watched like Batman, which I was a, I was a bigger Batman fan. I've always been a bigger Batman fan than Superman fan, but in the first five minutes you do see Michael Keaton in the costume. I mean, that's a conscious choice that Tim Burton made when making his movie was, Oh, we're not going to do the origin we're just going to jump right into it. But before we get into the movie itself, it has an interesting pre-production history because 
it was one of the most expensive movies made at the time over at a budget of like $55 million in 1978. And you would be wondering, how could a movie be that expensive back then? Well, the, the Salkins, the producers of it, were known for they had done the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers earlier in the 70s back-to-back and released them one year apart. So they decided after they'd gotten the rights to do Superman to do Superman 1 and 2 back-to-back. And there were so many people who were in consideration to play Superman, people including Muhammad Ali, Al Pacino, James Caan, Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, and Dustin Hoffman, which I can't really see Dustin Hoffman as Superman. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> but now I, I, I kind of want to see the end of The Graduate, him running to the church like with, with Superman speed. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that lot just take a lot of attention out of that. Like, uh, just gets there, like, oh, okay. Um, Maybe you could do it like, you know, like Rain Man. You just say he's an excellent superhero. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's how we can count cars. He was seeing through the deck the entire time. That's right. <laughs> ah, and in some of the fil- the writers they were approached with, we have Will- William Goldman, who sadly just passed away recently. Yeah. Uh, Lee Brackett was also approached, but. Mario Puzo, who was the the author of the Godfather novel and co-writer with Francis Ford Coppola, um, wrote a, like a 500-page draft of a Superman script. Now, a page of screenplay is about one minute's worth of a movie you would see on, on the big screen. So 500 pages, that's a bit much, even for two movies. And so that ended up having to be cut down. And so one of the biggest writers that came in was named Tom Mankiewicz, who was one of the principal writers on a lot of the Bond films in the 1970s. And so he took a lot of the camp out of it because it was like, all right, this is taking like a lot of stuff that is kind of rather silly from Superman. Like, yes, the second half of the movie when he becomes Superman is a little bit lighter in tone compared to the first half. But he was like, all right, let's just try and smooth the edges off a little bit. One of the filmmakers that was approached was Spielberg himself before Jaws came out. And after Jaws came out, they're like, hey, do you still want to do the Superman movie? He's like, nope, I'm going to do a Close Encounters movie instead. Mm. Uh, Guy ha- Hamilton, uh, a director of some of the, the Bond movies, was also approached. And he was ha- signed on to do it. And they're like, all right, we'll do it for this budget. We'll shoot it in Italy. But after Marlon Brando was cast as Jor-El, he's like, I can't shoot it in Italy because I have legal issues because of the tango in Paris. Oh. Yeah, mm. because of the so-called unsimulated sex scene that's in that movie, the very other explicit one. And so, like, all right, we'll move to England. Well, Guy Hamilton's like, well, I'm a, I left England due to tax evasion, so we I can't shoot there. <laughs> It's ridiculous. <laughs> they were like, "Did somebody not break the law, and we can make this movie?" <laughs> I, it's like uh, it's a it's a miracle this movie got made, and that, that's yeah. what I'm thinking about while reading this. I'm like, "How? Like this is ridiculous." So, Richard Donner, who came up with the success of doing The Omen previously, uh, after the success, like The Omen becoming the first blockbuster horror movie, was hired on to do this, and it's curious because. There was a video essay online about Steven Spielberg and why he makes such great blockbusters because he examines the fact that horror filmmakers can make the best blockbusters because they know how to build set pieces and suspense and be able to really draw in the audience. Because you think of Spielberg, you think of Ridley Scott or Sam Raimi or Peter Jackson or Guillermo del Toro, 
people who cut their teeth in horror who made bigger budget movies that were incredibly enthralling to audiences. Same thing with Richard Donner. The Omen is a, a fantastic horror movie, and of course yeah. he he brought his skills over into making Superman. So the movie opens up. We have the great uh, explosive logos with the John Williams score. So your feelings on how this movie opens in such a big and fantastic way. Well, I can just remember sitting there at um, however old I would have been, 12, I think, at the time during those opening credits. I was like, is this movie ever going to begin? Because it just <laughs> seemed like it was it was nonstop uh, opening credits. Um, but looking back on it now, I love how that has become the stamp of Superman the movie that, you know, there's... there's Everything about this movie is big and epic, even its even its opening credits. And even prior to that, I love the opening of the curtains parting, and the the cover of the action comics, and the you know the top of the the Daily Planet. I think um, I think that I think the opening credit just really sets the perfect tone for what we're about to see after this. Yeah, I, I, it was. The credits to make this movie, like, were some the budget that went into making the credits were sometimes bigger or some was bigger than some movies made at the time. And we've it's, it's 40 years, it's like it's celebrated the 40th anniversary of Superman, and this year we celebrate the 80th anniversary of the creation of the character. So, like, oh no, we're gonna not play, we're gonna play this well, we're not gonna play this well, we're gonna, we're gonna blow the doors off right at the top. And it's one of those things where seeing it in a movie theater with a great sound system is something that it's very, it's like the best way to see this movie is like, all right, you, yeah, you can watch on your phone and everything, but this is a movie that begs to be seen on the biggest screen possible. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, even earlier this year, uh, my friend Mike and I, who is a frequent co-host of the show, we went into New York city because there was a, actually a hotel called the Roxy hotel that has a movie theater in its basement. And they showed a 35 millimeter print of Superman, and it was kind of it was a Saturday, and I I I texted him on Thursday, hey, they're showing Superman in the city uh, on Saturday. You want to go? He's like, sure. Where's the theater? I'm like, oh, it's at this address. Like, that's not too far from the Ghostbusters firehouse. I'm like, yes, it is. So we made a day out of it. We saw Superman on the big screen, and then we visited the uh, Ghostbusters firehouse, and I know. They added, Fathom Events added a day to seeing this on the big screen. I know it's the last big screen is happening tonight or supposed to. I think there's another one going on maybe this weekend. But another opportunity like that happens, I say don't pass it up. Oh, totally. This this is, you know, this is one of those movie-going experiences that is an experience that you need to see in the movie theater. Absolutely. And so we open up on Krypton and the trial of... Zod, Nan, Ursa, and we see Marlon Brando as Jor-El. The planet is dying, and then we see baby Kal-El. And so I'll ask your opinions on how this movie opens up and how the scope of Krypton is immediately established right there at the top. You know, it's funny because watching it now and just watching it again for this episode to kind of bring myself up to speed, um, it's kind of quaint, isn't it, to look at how they, they shot Krypton? Um, you know, when you think about what they can do with kind of otherworldly planets uh, today in or otherworldly settings, I should say, today in movies, you know, superhero movies like uh, like Thor or um, Black Panther or Wonder Woman. Um, but 
it's really kind of cool what they did. I mean, they 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 created their own version of Krypton, which was a really difficult thing when you look back at a lot of those older comics. You know, Krypton was kind of this very, you know, 1930s, 40s, very you know, retro-looking, otherworldly planet, and they were really trying to put their more contemporary spin on what it would look like. I think that that opening trial sequence is just pretty amazing, the way that they they do that with all of the big faces of the, I guess it's like the, the jury or the, the people who are putting everyone on trial up there and kind of the, the spinning hula hoop type <laughs> uh, device that the... Um, uh, that the the villains are in and and just that that glowing look of uh, Krypton I think really sets it apart from anything that we had seen at that point in movies or or since so um, I I know it's easy to kind of diss on that and say oh it's very seventies looking uh, and everything but um, I I give them a lot of credit I think they they really made a very distinctive looking uh, Krypton. Oh, for sure, and never has a hula hoop looked more menacing. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. That that freaked me out when I was a kid. I was like, what is going on? What's happening to these people? Exactly, and you are right. Yes, like you have to put into context this is a movie made 40 years ago, but I think a good amount of the effects still hold up, and I think the miniatures for the most part hold up, especially Krypton, and you're right. You think of early versions of Krypton, it's very much like a World's Fair version of, like, the, the world of tomorrow could be. Yeah, yeah. And what we have here is, like, okay, this is very, especially, the, the I guess, the trial room, and, like, the faces, like, that's one of the first images that comes to mind whenever I think of this movie, is the trial of these traitors to Krypton. It's the faces surrounding them, and then Jor-El walking back and forth with his crystal staff that he ha- he's holding there. And of course, we have the probably the breakout. Well, the of the three people on trial, we have of course Terrence Stamp as General Zod. And I, I have today, I've been like saying things in my head as General Zod, like in his <laughs> gusto that he has, and the, the line specifically, like "You will bow down before me, you, and one day your heirs." Uh, <laughs> I'm like, ah, it's so. If it was not, if any other movie, this would be totally unbelievable, over the top. But within the context of this movie, it works perfectly. Oh yeah, he's so, he's so good, and you know I, you know, unbeknownst I think to a lot of us at the time, we didn't know that, and I'm sure we'll get into this. They were shooting, and you just refer, alluded to it. They were shooting Superman one and two back to back. So um, Terrence Stamp obviously knew he had a bigger role to play, but you know I can remember even then my dad saying, Terrence Stamp is a pretty big actor. What the heck was he doing in that movie for only five minutes? Um, but uh, to your point, Tim, he makes the most of that five minutes in this movie. Oh, definitely. And the fact that they shoot him so much, they shoot him from below, so he looks so... Like, uh, the fact that, like, okay, we have Non, the very big, brutish one of the three. Ursa, we have we have a list of what she's willing to do, that she's willing to slaughter... Uh, men, women, and children you know, if they get in his way. But then there's General Zod, the shortest one in the group, but has complete control. Even within the hula hoop, he has like <laughs> he has such power amongst them. He doesn't have to do much, but much, but like the extreme close-up of his eyes and his mouth when he screams those final lines, 
Like, yeah. okay, this is something that's very he's gonna come back and like I mentioned before, yes, his movies were shot back to back over the course of nineteen months, but they were not completed because Warner Bros. was unsure if this was gonna be a success. Now I'll get into that when gets we get to the ending later on and how that plays into Superman two and then the two versions of that movie. But the the three of them get trapped in a piece of glass and thrown into space, which is like uh, I'm like, is it a square? Is it? I, I was trying to remember before I got to. I'm like, is it still a square? Was it like a rhombus or a, tri- a trapezoid? <laughs> One of those two is a very dangerous uh, shape. If that came flying at me, I'd be scared. <laughs> I, I I do think that's very cool the way they did that, though. I think again that was their way of, um, I guess, contemporizing or or um, you know, kind of building off of. Uh, the growth and special effects that had happened probably since Star Wars had been in production and, and, you know, thinking to themselves, okay, we have to send these three characters, you know, off to this life sentence. How are we going to do this and do this uh, creatively? And uh, I just think that's, that's really cool the way they do that. Definitely. It's one of those iconic things that you remember for this movie is the Phantom Zone and like being trapped in there. Yeah. And, Afterwards, we have Jor-El trying to convince the people of Krypton that the planet is dying. And they're like, no, it's not going to happen. So a scientist providing facts to the people saying this planet's going to die if we don't change things. And they're not believing him. Not much has changed, if we're being honest here. <laughs> so true. That could have been shot yesterday. I'm like, <laughs> like if we just put like a, 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 a news ticker underneath it, a lower third, like in the end, like this is today, like here. But I love the the all the outfits of the the Council of Krypton, and apparently it was uh, the material is like three M material, and when it was shined a light on it, it would glow like that. So I love that like white shimmering glow off of each actor and each house of having their own diff- distinct uh, design. And of course, the house of L having the S on it. Yeah. But and uh, uh, it's like ah, oh, it's, it's a really cool design choice. But the planet is dying, and Jor-El decides to send off his baby into and off to Earth because that's a place. It's very similar to Krypton. He'll be safe. And that speech that Marlon Brando gives to Kal-El is something that, watching it a few months ago on the big screen, it brought tears to my eyes just hearing this because Marlon Brando at this point had become, I, I wouldn't say kind of difficult to work with. He would not memorize his lines. He would read things off cue cards because it would sound the most freshest way of conveying those ideas behind those words. But he brings it for this little speech that he gives to his son here. Oh, totally. And didn't he... I think at the time he garnered like the biggest uh, paycheck of any actor in a movie um, up, up to this point. And I'm trying to remember how much it, it was. It, um, I, I had it right here. I think it's uh, okay. Marla Brando was paid $3.7 million up front plus a percentage of the gross. And the payment was also supposed to cover the sequel as well. Now, it was he kind of bad mouth. You know, he sued the uh, Salkins and Warner Brothers, and so that's why he did not come back for Superman Two. That's why Superman's mother is in the Lester cut of Superman Two because mm. they because Marlon Brando had soured the waters between himself and Warner Brothers. Interesting, but you're right. I mean, he he brings full Marlon Brando into his small uh, part of this 
movie and um you know he delivers in in every scene um including that one that they were just you were referring to when he's saying goodbye to his son i mean i like the lines of the, the two lines that always remain with me is um uh the son becomes a father, and the father becomes a son. Always stuck, sticks with me. And mm. when he's talking about hum- humans on Earth, like they can be a great people, Kal El. They cho- they can't. They wish to be. They only need somebody to show them the light. That's something that perfectly personifies what Superman does and what his personality is to show humanity what they're capable of. That you do not need superpowers to be great. Yes, no, I have that's a great point. Like I have all these powers, but you're the ones, you're the real inspirational people that keep me going. And that's one of the great conceits to Superman's writing that's it's kept him alive in comics for the past 80 years. Mm. That's a great point. Yeah, and so Krypton goes kaboom. Uh, Kal-El is, uh, even the design of the spaceship looking like like a star or like an exploding star itself and like how it's like, Pointed and jagged, it's as it blasts out the top of the crypt of their house and goes flying off as Krypton explodes. There is a actually have um, there's a piece of kind of like a glass set that that, that I have in my house where it's certain designs to kind of look like it's meant to go on a coffee table and look very nice and everything. And it's something very similar to this Kal-El spaceship. I remember as a kid. It was these these uh, little glass trinkets were on this cabinet. And I shook it when I was very young, and that piece that one fell off and hit me in the head, and, oh, it, and the point cracked. And like we still have it, you can see like everything's all these kind of points are rel- relatively the same length except for one, and I still have a scar in the middle of my forehead from that. <laughs> and so when it went out the wind, the winch, the uh, top of the ceiling here, I'm like, oh, so that's supposed to what it looked like when it hit me in the head when I was very kid. <laughs> and, and so I had, I had a momentary childhood flashback there. <laughs> but Kal-El hears the history of like Krypton as he flies to Earth, and we meet the Kents. And your feelings of them finding uh, baby Kal-El. Uh, I love that scene. Um, I'm not sure if we needed the full frontal nudity in it, but, um, I, 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 I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) but, uh, I, I remember that, like, that was very shocking to the audience, uh, to see that just in a funny way. Like, I think cause, cause everybody just wasn't expecting it. Um, but, uh, that I, I love, I love that scene because you're immediately with that family, um, you know, the, the, the way that they show that big meteor having come down uh, to Earth, um, how he there's that reveal of, um, you know, young Clark kind of, you know, a young Superman, Kyle lifting the 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 truck when uh, Pa Kent is trying to um, to change the tire um, and they both turn around and they look at the the field and where the meteors crashed and they look back at at him that's a great laugh um and i think it was just you know it really kind of set up the those scenes uh, and not that not just those that would happen in smallville but i think even after of that fish out of water type story that's part of superman um i think they they set that up really well and hooked the audience really well totally and another image that comes to mind whenever i think of this movie is Baby Kal-El holding up the truck. He's in the foreground and the Kents are in the background. And having 
Glenn Ford and uh, Phyllis Thaxter. I mean, they're the personification of Ma and Pa cats. Oh, so good. So good. Uh, especially later on when when Clark's a teenager and kind of that Pa gives him the speech of what he needs to do. But even from the very first moment, it's like, you wonder, like, oh, these strangers are going to take this kid out of the spaceship? Like, do you, would you really trust these people? But they're so homegrown, homespun, and so genuine. They're like, okay, this kid's going to be in good hands, and he's going to grow up at the typical Americana lifestyle in Kansas. And they're, they're literally, like, ripped from the comic pages. And that's why I every moment they're on screen, I, I just adore. Yeah, and there's such sweetness there, you know, for this couple that wanted a child um, and, you know, couldn't have one. And now, you know, uh, the universe literally brought them a child. You know, the, the, that, that whole piece is just really, really sweet as well. Exactly. And it's a funny story that Michael Uslin on the making of the first Batman documentary on the DVD he told the story about in the 1970s, he was, I forget which university in the Midwest was offering. If you can come up with a curriculum and pitch it well enough, we'll let you teach this at our college. And so he proposed to teach the first college on comic books. He goes, he presents his story and then, and, and he finishes his pitch. And then one of the, I guess, curmudgeoned uh, people on there was like, sir, son, like, we teach serious stuff here and not funny books. And like, I liked Superman when I was a kid, but th- this is not serious literature that could be analyzed and be taken seriously. So he says, okay, you read Superman, right? They're like, yes. Okay. Tell me the story of Superman. He's like, Oh, that Kal-El was on a dying planet sent to earth and was raised by the Kents and became Superman and, and stops evil metropolis. Like, okay. Can you tell me the story of Moses? Like, Sure. The death of the firstborns were happening. They sent baby Moses down the uh, river in a basket. It was found by another family. And the person stops himself and realizes, huh, okay, you convinced me. You've got your curriculum. And Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster uh, were Jewish Americans. In, uh, and they kind of filtered their upbringing into Superman here. And seeing it being brought to life here in the movie is something like, okay, you respect the origin. Because it's something that with other movies, they're like, okay, we could change a few things here and there. But no, this movie is like, we're respecting the origin and where it came from and its lineage. And it's so well presented here in the movie. Yeah, totally. And and, um, you mentioned that this in the intro, you mentioned this movie is the touchstone. Um, And it that's that's a perfect description for what this movie is because if you think about how many superhero movies we've seen an origin story, and then that's usually the first half of the movie. And the second half is them, uh, you know, facing off against uh, their foe, the villain. Um, This movie is the template uh, for that and um, sets it up really strongly and really emotionally in these early scenes. Exactly. I mean, I was wa- I was watching the timer when later on when Superman first shows up to save Lois. If you set a timer to that and to Batman Begins, it is pretty close of when we first time we see Superman through see the first time we see Batman in that movie. It's nearly an hour in before we see him in costume like that, and 
Spider-Man, we don't see him in his full costume until like more than a third instant movie. It's mm. and of course, origin origin movies have changed here and there, and how you done differently, especially if you're doing a TV versus a movie. But it is very interesting to see how right this is the template and how every comic book movie or comic book property is judged against it, both fairly and unfairly, depending on your perspective. Yeah. Go on. No, it's just that I was agreeing. I was like, yeah, they they do, you know, for for better or worse, compare uh, every uh, every comic book movie to to Superman. Yeah, and I'll kind of get into that until later on when we talk about the legacy movie near the end. But we move on, and we have uh, teenage uh, Clark Kent played, but now Clark Kent, Kyle now Clark Kent played by Jeff East, and he's with heavy makeup to make himself look more like Christopher Reeves, and he's actually dubbed by him, which he did not know was going to happen. He didn't know that until the movie came out. And so there was tension between the two actors, but it was eventually squashed. And it's curious to see... It's it's fun to see Clark kind of angsty. Like, I could be so much more if I just show, like, a half a percent of my powers. Yeah. and Go on. No, I'm sorry. Um, and and I think is, you know, I I think it was really interesting for them to show those like early days of Superman and with um, Lana um, and you know the the scenes in the with the football team um, and how frustrated he was. Um, you know, I I. And again, maybe I don't remember this from the comics, but I don't remember the comics going into that in that much depth and detail. And I think the movie kind of sets up what life is going to be like for him on Earth um, really well just in those those few scenes. Yeah, because if if you are Ma and Pa Kent, you wouldn't want Clark to be on the football team because he could kill somebody if he really <laughs> if he on accident. Yeah, that's true. Like, local boy pummeled by opponent team, more at 11. Uh, I mean, like, be, he would be unstoppable. Like, the whole team would have to jump on him to try and stop him if he got up, if he was able to receive the pass and was running for a touchdown. And that frustrating how, and how he's kind of teased by the rest of the people on the football team. And we see him just kick the, the, the football into the outer atmosphere at one point. But I love the fact that like he gets his angst out with racing the train, which yes, it does look a little dated, but John Williams' score makes that scene very thrilling, even to this day. Oh, totally, totally, and of course the original uh, Lois Lane in the train, right? I think a lot of her scene was cut, but um, uh, the uh, Noel Neal, I believe the actress's name was, who played Lois Lane on the TV show, is. Um, is the the woman in the train with the little girls looking out the window? Yeah, because like in the director's cut, because I, I probably should have said this before, we are talking about the theatrical cut of this movie because that's the one that's for the fortieth anniversary. Um, the director's cut is very is very good. I think I prefer the theatrical cut because I think it's better paced. Um, I have not seen the three hour TV cut. I know it's been released by Warner Archives earlier this year. I've not gotten around to picking that up. I know I have to. But I love that where it's like the little girl knows like, hey, that guy was racing the train. Like, oh, yeah. oh, silly. Stop. Stop making up things. 
Yeah. And, and he outruns the train, and he gets back to the farm before the people who tease him raced off in their car. But the most pivotal moment in the first part of the movie is seeing Pa can't give his son a speech that you are here for a reason, and he decides, like, all right, they feel he, Clark feels better, decides, like, hey, Dad, race me. They decide to run up the hill and just, like, oh, no, and Glenn Ford just collapses and shows how scary a heart attack can be. Yeah. Man, that's um, that's a really powerful scene. That and the, you know, the funeral um, after it. And, you know, I was just thinking of this watching the movie again recently, how invested you already are um, in this main character and in these other characters and Superman in his full, you know, Superman costume and cape hasn't even appeared yet. Um, and we're already fully on board uh, with with all these characters. And, and, you know, like you said, Tim, the, the great thing that I think really resonates about Superman is that the story has so many deeper meanings and themes, you know, about how um, Superman is here for a reason to show us just, you know, how everybody has worth. And I think another one of the underlying themes, at least in Superman the movie and probably in the comics, too, is how precious life is and how Superman, you know, knows that and recognizes that. And I think this is one of those scenes um, with Pa Kent um, having the heart attack um, that uh, that kind of hits that that theme home very powerfully. Yeah, it's and just like how sudden and with like an out fanfare and then how that he that Clark even underlines it at the funeral where it says, with all my abilities, I still couldn't save him. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think Neil Adams has said before, it's like one of the great movie heart attacks. It's like this, Glenn Ford just grabs his arm and he just falls over. And just hear Ma can't scream out for Jonathan. And you're like, oh, no. And yeah. it's because one thing about John Williams' scores and like for all of his movies, like there is a term that you brought up on Dis- uh, Disorder before, this the Mickey Mouse version of composing where each individual movement or action that happens on screen is accompanied by music. And John Williams does that beautifully through all of his movies, especially I think some of his best, obviously here in Superman, but I think, I think the uh, chase for the arc in Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think it's one of his best pieces of music as well as the asteroid uh, field chase and empire strikes back. Uh, but yeah. here, it's quiet. It's all the natural sounds of it with like just a little bit of resonance going on underneath. That's like, Oh, this is a very serious moment here. And it does tear your heart out. And you've, this is the second scene we see in this character and you've already feel heartbroken with him being gone. Yeah. Yep. And I love when it's the, that Clark gets the, here's the call from the green crystal of his ship in the ship that he came in. And it's the following morning, and Ma Kent gets up, and it's, the only light is coming in through the windows. Like, that's the only light source. And she's silhouetted against it, and it looks like Gone with the Wind. Like, how, yeah, like, how gorgeous does, the yeah. color. That's, that's what came to mind when I saw that. And there was something really special about at least filmmaking at the time when she goes out to meet him in the field, and it's that big crane shot. You see the the farm in the background just the wheat field in front of him and they cranes down to Clark in the foreground and Ma comes up to his side and it's just really classical filmmaking that it's something like 
I miss as a moviegoer these days. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, also says a lot about uh, Richard Donner, or Dick Donner, as you've been calling him, because, um, you know, he he's one of these filmmakers, I think, who just makes movie directing look so effortless and easy because his resume is so varied um, in what he's done. Um, but when you think back on all of his movies, um, everything from Lethal Weapon to Goonies to Scrooged to this, um, and you think about scenes like the one you just said, he is just, he, he's a really great director. He really is. Yeah, and it, I need to get his biography. And I think the title is called "You're the Director, You'll Figure It Out." Oh, jeez! And I'm just like, oh, that's just that's just so in line with his humor and everything. And yes, uh, you're right. And he does make everything look effortless. And you're right. Like, there's so many different things he's done throughout his career. His career that, like you mentioned, Goonies, the Lethal Weapon series, uh, even Maverick. I, I'm like, ah, yeah. I forgot how wonderful that movie is. And it's just classical filmmaking that like people at the time like Donner, Spielberg, Coppola, and Lucas that were just like and really Scott like we're gonna we're gonna shoot this in widescreen we're gonna make it in the, we, you're gonna need to see it on the biggest screen possible and you you get your money's worth and so Ma can ask excuse me Ma can ask where are you going north and he follows the crystal all the way to the presumably the North Pole, throws the crystal into the water, and it forms the Fortress of Solitude, and we see the crystals where Clark pushes one of the, one of the crystals, and the consciousness of Kal-El shows up and decides to teach him, and your feelings on the Fortress of Solitude section of the movie? I think there's real excitement here, because this is... Um... You know, this is almost like the scene where you realize we're about to see Superman. Like, th this is, you know, you've been fully invested in this movie uh, up to this point, but now you're suddenly realizing that the rubber's going to hit the road and we're about to see Superman. And I think they, the whole concept of the Fortress of Solitude and the way that they uh, play that out, I think they do a really good job of, of, building that excitement that audiences at the time and still to this very day, it's a really cool scene um, and ramps you up to see the main character. Exactly. And the fact that we see, it's obviously a miniature set by, and the miniatures were done by Derek Meddings, who did most of the uh, miniatures. There's one miniature near the end where he doesn't, he didn't do it. It kind of stands out because it's the quality of his like, kind of, not as good as everything else, but it's curious to see something like this where he's like, all right, tell me everything. And 12 years later, uh, Superman leaves the Fortress of Solitude to rejoin society, which is something I'll bring up later for people who, or I'll say it now, but people who give Henry Cavill Superman crap that he's using all his powers to be very irresponsible with them. Like, well, it's a few days of him being a superhero. He hasn't had 12 years of training like Christopher Reeves. Uh, <laughs> I was going to try and limit the comparisons. I, I didn't want to come in and be like all defensive about that, but it's something I just needed to say out there. It's, but 
we finally get to Metropolis, and we are introduced to Christopher Reeve himself as Clark Kent. We have Margot Kidder as Lois Lane, and then we have uh, oh, I forget the actress' name who plays um, uh, Perry White. I'm... Oh, that was Jackie Cooper. Yes, and each one of them making the role of their own, and your feelings on their interactions at the very beginning of how Clark being so oh shucks and everybody being the city slickers that they are. Well, first off, and I think you would agree, how cool was it uh, the first time to see, you know, New York subbing for Metropolis? And, and, you know, even as a kid, I knew that this was supposed to be in Metropolis, but I would sit there and say, that's, that's New York. So I think them using uh, New York City was a really cool way of, again, contemporizing the movie and, and updating this story and plunking Superman down into uh, the then modern day uh, world. Um, Christopher Reeve shows what a phenomenal actor he is in these scenes because this is the whole fish out of water uh, story that, you know, we were alluding to of, you know, Clark Kent kind of coming into this new world that he doesn't really know uh, a lot about. And, you know, I think we've, we've seen how great Christopher Reeve is, but I think this shows what a really good, what really good comedic timing um, he has uh, in, in these early scenes. Jackie Cooper had just been a pro at this point. He was a child actor um, and uh, he's really good as the very gruff Perry White. And um, Margot Kidder is awesome as Lois Lane. And, you know, this this was not an, an easy character, I would imagine, at the time to bring to the screen, because I think Lois Lane, I know Lois Lane in the George Reeves show was always more of the damsel in distress. And, um, you know, in, in probably a lot of those early comics uh, as well. And, um she just played the heck out of that character as, uh, you know, a strong, uh, independent uh, female character in a, you know, big budget comic book film. And you talk about some someone and, and a performance that set the standard for a lot of other performances that would follow. Um, there it is. So uh, I I love these early scenes, much like. The, early, the scenes in Krypton and Smallville, I think these early scenes in Metropolis really very quickly um, set the tone for what we're about to see for the rest of the film. Definitely. And the fact that the chemistry between all of them is almost palpable. Yeah. And even yeah. if like the first moments into them being together, you're just like, like, like our uh, Lane show uh, show Kent to the ropes. Like, well, oh hi Lois, how you doing? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah let, let's go, let's go small. But like, oh okay, okay, Lois. Then he pushes up his glasses on his nose. Yeah, and you're right that you could drop Christopher Reeve into like a Buster Keaton movie, and I think he would just be as good as physical as a physical comedian in that yeah. in that world. Yeah, totally, totally. And uh, another actor, Mark McClure, who plays um, Jimmy Olsen. Uh, is is like they they all work really well together. You're right that that chemistry between them is is really really good. I'd be interested to know where these scenes were shot because I'm sure the film was shot um, out of sequence because uh, you know you you just really 
you really get the the feeling watching it, like you said, that they're very much in sync with one another. Yeah, I know a lot of the sets were done in Pinewood Studios in England, so I'm pretty sure this that's where these were shot. Um, and of course, obviously, the location stuff done on the streets of New York City. Um, but I, I even love the look of the newsroom here and the, the clear swinging uh, doors to uh, White's <laughs> office and how much they get so much mileage of going in and out of them constantly and how, like, unintentionally funny that is of, like, oh, no, wait, hold on one second, like, and it's, like, Clark needing to knock on the door every time before he enters because he's just being that polite. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> oh, go on. No, I was going to say, and the sound of something you, you'll never hear again in a newsroom, the sound of typewriters. <laughs> that's that's for sure. It's the sound of typewriters and just the billowing of smoke of everybody's, like, puffing on, like, <laughs> yeah, right. pipes and cigarettes just, like, the entire time. <laughs> Unfiltered Marlboros is filling the air that's here. Right. Uh, it just reminds me of the joke that Dennis Leary was talking about in his stand-up, like, in the early 90s, like uh, – Bus driver, uh, somebody gets hit by a, a bus in New York City. Sorry, officer, I couldn't, I didn't see him. I was too busy smoking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love the sound of typewriters. I, I know I, I've said it before, I'm an old soul in a new body, but I, I love the sound of just the, the clicking sound of a typewriter and the ka-ching and sending it back to the start and everything. Um, but specifically with Marco Kidder, Marco Kidder herself, I mean, actually, Last week, I got a chance to see her on the big screen. Somebody, uh, the I've said before numerous times on the show, Retro Picture Show, that show, Double Bill of Horror Movies, back to back. They last Friday for Black Friday, Black Friday, they showed Gremlins and Black Christmas back to back on thirty-five millimeter. Both of them were gorgeous, and Gremlins, everybody, it was so adorable seeing Gizmo being Gizmo, and like the whole theater was was just like, oh, the whole schmaltzy <laughs> stuff for the first half. And then when the gremlins come, it's like, it's a fun time. Black Christmas starts, and, like, that movie is deadly serious. And Margot Kidder is, is a whirlwind in that, just like she's here in Superman. And the energy between Chris Reeve and Margot Kidder is something that I could not stop smiling rewatching it for this review. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And just, like, it's like, oh, this is so charming. And I just, like, and... It's just, I miss them both. Like, that's something that I came to realization of, like, I, with her passing earlier this year and obviously Chris Reeve passing years ago, it's just like, I understand why future iterations of Superman and Lois Lane have always tried to recapture the magic these two have had. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and you know, if you think about the task that the two of them had of stepping into these roles, because... Um, even people who didn't read comics at the time knew who Superman and Lois Lane were. Um, so for them to really make these two roles their own, the way that they did, says a lot about um, how gifted they were as actors. Exactly. And I even love when that Lois jokes about the fact, like, oh, you're sending half your paycheck back to a... a Gray old mother back on back home. Well, she's kind of silver haired, uh, Lois. It's like, <laughs> and just like it's just so like like it's so goofy. Like any other way, like 
like, oh, come on. Like, nobody would take it seriously. But just within the tone of this movie and their being so sincere, they never wink at the audience. I mean, like, yes, like, there are the times when Lois walks away and, like, Clark just smiles to himself. They're like, yeah, we know that he's, as Superman is putting on a facade for everybody. But he does it so sincerely that you just buy it wholesale without questioning it. Yep. Um, but they go, they leave the, the Daily Planet at one point and get, um, they get stuck up by a mugger in the, in an alleyway. And I love the moment where like Clark being like trying to be protective and everything, but have to still be like, Oh, well, well, well sir, you don't want to do that. And end up catching the bullet and, and stop and saving Lois's life is one of my favorite moments of the movie. Oh, I, I, I love that. I think it very quietly hints at what's to come, you know, especially when, you know, I, even the first time you watch it, you're thinking, wait a minute, what just happened? That guy shot the gun. Why isn't he dead? I don't understand what's happening. And then as she walks away, you know, Christopher Reeves, Reeves Clark just kind of looks down at his hand and opens up his hand with the, you know, smashed bullet and drops it. Um, just a really nice, very subtle, uh, foreshadowing of of what's to come definitely and oh um to make a correction before people say anything otherwise i'm looking it up now the new york daily news building on 42nd street that was the stand-in for the daily planet for this movie yeah uh the 007 stage the broccoli stage was used for the interiors for the forces of solitude um and then we have shepherdton studios well and a bunch of other places of course Stuff in New Mexico, uh, the Hoover Dam, and there was, it was this was truly an international movie to really set the fact that this is a larger than life movie. But later on, uh, that Lois has to take a helicopter to go to go for a news story, and maybe it's because the cliche afterwards, like because of the impact of this movie, that Lois Lane should stay away from air travel because something seems to go amiss every time she's like she's in the air. <laughs> that is true. It's probably like so much of this movie, like setting a template, like but starts here, like oh, if the helicopter goes awry, she almost goes off the roof. She's trying to climb out of it, and Clark steps out and sees what's happening, and we have a nice callback to the the George Reeves TV show where we see a phone booth, but there's no closing door, so we can't change in there. <laughs> and I'll admit, watching it this time, and my eyes welled up with tears of joy when he pulled back his shirt and revealing the Superman logo. And every time I see that, it's, it's so emotional for me to see Superman finally be Superman. Cash Lois, she's like, I got you, ma'am. Got you. Got me. Who's got you? And he grabs a helicopter. It's phenomenal. And your feelings on Superman's first night out as a crime fighter. Uh, it was, this was the perfect introduction for Superman in this movie. Um, and talk about how do we bring Superman into the modern world? The scene you just talked about where he looks at that, you know, little phone kiosk that, that there used to be out there, little payphone kiosks where one time there had been phone booths and he doesn't quite know what to do. I remember that getting the biggest laugh. And then um, when he he goes to fly up and rescue Lois and the the one guy says to him say Jack that's a bad suit or something to that effect <laughs> <laughs> that gets a tremendous laugh as well and and her line of you've got me 
who's got you? I mean, when you think about Superman just appearing in our, our current world or in, you know, 1978, that is the things that he would face. He didn't have a phone booth. You know, there'd be people out there that would just be, you know, if Metropolis is like New York City, you know, there's some people who would let Superman walk down the street and wouldn't even look twice, you know, or would just make a comment on on how he's he's dressed. And when he would rescue someone, their first thought would be, you've got me. Who the heck has you? And it's it's just a really exciting scene. I mean, the scene with Lois hanging from that helicopter is really well done. Um, and it's it's just a really triumphant way to bring Superman into the movie. It's really amazing. I mean, I'm just thinking about it right now, and I got the biggest smile on my face because of it. And just seeing he's got Lois in one arm, and in the other arm he's holding up the helicopter. He flies up the roof to put both of them down. Yeah. And then he reassures her that saying, you know, statistically, it's still the safest way to travel. And Margot Kidder's got her eyes are the size of saucers is looking at him, <laughs> and she's, like, nodding, like, like, these are words I understand, but they're not computing right now. Like, yes, you're <laughs> right. right. And uh, she faints in comedic fashion, and like so many people would, just like you've had a near death experience, and you just saw a man fly away without wings. Like mm-hmm. that would be overwhelming the first time you saw that. And then we go into this montage of him stopping uh, criminals everywhere, and I, I I think one of my favorite ones is the criminal. Scaling the side of the building with like the, the uh, like rubber stickers things and just like sucking suction cupping his way up the side of the building, and like there's something wrong with the elevator and he he falls <laughs> catches him, but the gag of the one person working in the office at night, he hears Superman catch him but looks up, ah, and just yeah. pays, pays it no mind. Those scenes seem very classic Superman. You know, just crime-fighting Superman. I just, I, I love that whole montage, and I love, I love the humor that they, that they inject into this movie, and the fact that it doesn't seem over the top, it doesn't seem out of place. Um, that scene of the the guy scaling the building with the suction cups that you just talked about is great. I love the scene on the boat where the guy tries to hit him with the crowbar and he just kind of, you know, bad, bad vibrations, you know, when he, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just such a great line. Um, it's, it seems very contemporary, but it seems very classic at the same time. I mean, when I saw this in theaters earlier this year, when he, my friend Mike and I kind of leaned forward at the same time as the guy reeled back with the crowbar, about the crack soup, man, we both like mind with our hands, like, as, as it just bounced off of him, it, it is it is quintessential Superman, and like this, like the comics, it's like okay, this is just such a part of the fabric of the character that set up gags that be going forward. And I love even love the Officer Moody trying to tell his superior officers about, yeah, this man flew down, gave me this cat burglar, and everything, and like yeah, 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 I think you should go off and. Sleep off whatever you just had before you came in here, and his superior officer sees the boat in the middle of the street. Like, all right, let's hit the bar first. Bottles on me. It's, it's not taking itself too seriously, nor is it above the material either. It's like we're gonna have fun with this. Is a, this is, this would be a fun time to have to see these things in real life. 
Yeah, and, and it also kind of uses that old trope that seemed to be around in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s of if I'm seeing something I don't believe, it must be related to alcohol. There's always that that one piece of like, you know, the guy's like, what have you been drinking? Or, all right, we're hitting up the bar, and they use it in this movie too. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like one of my favorite like gags like that, I think it's from Moonraker, where I think Roger Moore's uh, Bond's gondola drives up on the road, out of the water, onto the streets of Venice. That I think a pigeon does a double take, and there's a gentleman sitting at a table with a wine bottle in front of him, like with the rope around it. He grabs it, looks at it, like, wow, that's a lot stronger than I expected because he just saw a gondola <laughs> with wheels. Uh, that joke worked all the time for about four decades there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And. It wouldn't be a Superman movie if a plane doesn't fall out of the sky either that he has to save. And, of course, uh, Air Force One is falling out of the sky. He replaces the engine with himself. And I love the pilot. It's like, just fly. Don't question <laughs> it. Take my word for it. Just fly. And immediately turns back to see what Superman is doing. <laughs> it's just so... Like I, I, I know I'm, I'm running out of ways of synonyms to describe it, but yes, it's so essential Superman, and maybe because a lot of it's been solidified here, but we, we have a hero, but we a hero is only as good as his villain, and we kind of skipped over a little bit earlier, but we're finally introduced to Lex Luthor with following Ned Beatty's Otis through New York City, or Metropolis, and one of the cops that follows him, the one that does not get killed, who's in every Richard Donner movie, is... I forget the actor's name, but he's he's Richard Donner's cousin. Oh, is that right? He, he, I, you know, because for years I would think, is that Richard Donner doing a cameo in one of his own movies? Because they look a lot alike. Yeah, he he. If for other people who are unaware, he's the captain in all the Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah, yeah. And it's so curious to see him with long hair. I was like, oh. Wow, I forgot, like, wow, you did have a head of hair at one point. It, something that, it took me back a little bit. But Ned Beatty's Otis, the kind of buffoon of this movie, still gets a laugh out of me every time him just overreacting, knocking things over, and being completely unaware of his surroundings. Yep, totally. And, again, I think, you know, Ned Beatty's been in a lot of really – heavy dramatic films deliverance comes to mind but he shows here that he's got great comedic timing definitely i mean obviously he said deliverance where he had a very rough experience in that movie <laughs> he uh, did <laughs> <laughs> then you have obviously a network where he has one of the greatest speeches in movie history written by patty chayeski oh yeah and a, a speech that's more relevant today than it was in the late 70s. Like, that was satire back then. Now it's really the truth these days. But here, with him being the kind of oafish person of, like, who's the constant foil to Lex Luthor, played by Gene Hackman, you wonder, why does he hire... Why does he keep him employed if he's that much of a klutz? <laughs> that's true. But, of course, we have Gene Hackman, the... The one and only G. Hackman is Lex Luthor, and in his underground, his underground fortress of his running his criminal empire. Your feelings on G. Hackman in this movie? You know, it's it's it sounds so simplistic to say this, but Gene Hackman is the man. <laughs> he really is. He is so 
good in this movie and and in Superman 2 as well. But he is everything you want from a villain in a Superman movie. And we've been talking a lot about, you know, Christopher Reeve's comic timing and um, Ned Beatty's comic timing. And Gene Hackman has shown that he's he's a really good comedian in, you know, a lot of movies through the years. He had that cameo in Young Frankenstein, um, and which, which I love. Um, and in The Birdcage, he's so great there. Um, but his just dry, acerbic, mean-spirited wit in this movie is outstanding. And his, his lines never fail to crack me up, no matter how many times I've seen the movie. I remember laughing at them the first time I saw the movie, and I laugh at them now knowing that the line is coming up. Um, but he's just, he's just so good in this movie. I, I think his performance in this should have been nominated for an Oscar. I think it's a shame that he wasn't, because I think it's just, it's just, you know, one of these performances that, you know, you said um, a hero is only as good as, as their villain. And, you know, he, he just, he, he personifies that in this movie. Exactly. And the fact that like, he had already won an Oscar earlier on. He won it for the French Connection, mm-hmm. and Gene Hackman is in tie for my favorite actor along with Jimmy Stewart. And so, mm-hmm. I watch anything Gene Hackman's in. As the one thing I've, I've said about him, he's got the greatest chuckle in any movie. <laughs> I, I think Kurt Russell has the greatest, like, like really outlandish laugh, like. Listen to any interview or commentary track with Kurt Russell. He has the greatest laugh in movies. But Gene Hackman's chuckle, just like, <laughs> I can't even do it or articulate. It just, it just personifies Lex Luthor. And especially later on when they're they're in his library, he's on the ladder, and uh, Otis pushes it, thinking he's going to M, and he's hanging there. He's like, M, as a moron, or I meant N, as a nincompoot, nitwit, move it over here, L with the ladder. It just, it still gets a laugh out of me, even to this day. And like this, and even like uh, Miss Tessmacher, played by Valerie uh, Perrine, and just how I can't help, like every now and then, like when I have to yell something, like I just hear Gene Hackman yelling Miss Tessmacher in the back of my head. <laughs> you can't just say her name. It feels like her name always has to be yelled. Exactly. Like, Miss Tessmacher! It has an echo throughout whatever uh, building you're in. Um, but uh, it's just, like, you, you, you're right. He should have been nominated for it. I mean, this movie was nominated for three Oscars for Best Film Editing, uh, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. It did receive a Special Achievement in Academy Award for the visual effects. And he and Dick Donner did express disgust that production designer John Barry and cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth were not uh, recognized by the Academy. Obviously, both those individuals passed away before the movie was completed. Um, hmm. Oh, no. Jeffrey, I think, was passed before the movie was completed. That's why at the beginning of the movie, you see it's dedicated to him and so on and so forth. But... They realize, okay, we have these crime of the century. We're gonna, we're gonna erase um, the West Coast and create my own new West Coast by buying up all this land because we're gonna take these 
nuclear weapons they're doing nuclear testing and redirect them. But now that Superman's around, we need something that could stop him. So they come up with the idea. We find this. They they have an idea to try and use something against them. But before that, we have a scene that's very important to this movie. And it's like one of the only scenes that I have a little bit of an issue with. But it's the night I spent with Superman. But Lois Lane has pretty much an interview slash date with Superman. So your feelings on that scene? Yeah, I can see where, you know, it, it seems like it. It seems like the movie comes to a screeching halt um, for the for this scene, um, but I kind of like how it's a quiet moment between the two characters, and I think it was uh, I think it was really important for them to put that in there for them to build that relationship between the two of them, not just the romantic relationship, but you know the the fact that you know these two characters come to you know, depend on each other, uh, so to speak. Um, and again, I thought it was just another funny way to bring Superman into um, the modern world as he shows off his X-ray powers towards the end of that uh, that scene. So um, I thought it was a nice sequence between the two of them. Like the interview itself, I really enjoyed because Chris Reeve cannot help but be charming as Superman. Yeah. And it's so believable for Margot Kidder to fall for him. My only part of it, I think it doesn't hold up this well, but I think you said it like kind of comes to a screeching halt. Is like, can you read my mind moment when they're oh. flying together? That's like the only thing I'm like, okay, I understand it's supposed to really hammer home the feelings that Lois has for Superman. And it is very beautiful and, and such, but I think it's like the only time, that's like the only time I'm like checking my watch during this movie. Yeah, no, and I I think a big part of that, too, was a big piece of movies at this time and through the 80s was that um, they wanted a song to go with the movie because they would hope that it would be like a top 40 or top 10 hit, and that that would help market um, the movie. And there was, I think it was at least a, a top 40 hit version of that song that Lois speaks um, in the movie, but it was sung um, in the song. And I forget the singer who sings it. I don't think it's even played over the uh, ending credits of of the movie. But um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you there that that just seems uh, that that definitely seems to bring things to a halt. Yeah, I, like it's like the only um, Maureen McGovern. Maureen McGovern. That's who it was. Yep. Yeah. Um. And it's a really nice song, but like I admit, it's that's like the only time in this movie that I'm like, okay, we can move it on a little bit here because everything else moves at a clip in this movie afterwards. Yeah. But the it is kind of foolish for Superman to say, "I, I can't see through lead." That is, a, but then again, he won't tell a lie. He will, like he could just like kind of admitted that or something like that, but that's him being the the Boy Scout being like, of course, like that's something that's cannot be used against me whatsoever by my enemies. Yeah, yeah. But then again, he has been he's been invulnerable to everything else, so I don't think he really thinks there's anything to be worried about giving that away. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's um, he's got he's really has no reason to mistrust Lois or really the world at this point, right? 
Yeah, and the fact that like, yeah, like I'm six foot four, I'm two hundred and twenty five pounds, and I, I just love how Margot Caro just leans in further and further over the table towards him, and it's like, and some people could say, oh, that's silly, nobody could fall in love with that easily. I'm like, no, that he is being as charming as can be, yeah. and it's really a wonderful moment between the two of them. Yep, agreed. And so. With that article published uh, saying my night with Superman, Lex Luthor realizes, like, oh, he came to Earth in 1951, so we'll see what other meteorites came in, and they find kryptonite, and they decide to use that against him. But before that, they need to put their plan to action, and so Miss Tessmacher, uh, <laughs> Otis, and Lex decide to uh, mess with the nuclear weapons that are traveling across the country with Comedic hijinks ensue. Totally, <laughs> I, I can't help but laugh all the way through this this montage here. Yep, and and again, I think um, I I think it shows like the fact that this movie was taking itself seriously, but also was having a heck of a lot of fun as well. Totally, I, I mean. Even the fact, like all the army men are surrounding Miss Tessmacher, who's, uh, who's <laughs> <laughs> and they're fighting over each other to like give her mouth to mouth respite, uh, to give her mouth to mouth. There, like, no, no, I'll do it, I'll do it. Then to find a volunteer for it, like, yes, we're we're not taking ourselves too seriously here. You're right. And, and the random, I'm sorry, but the random cameo by Larry Hagman, too. It's strange that he shows up in here. I'm like, like, were you a friend of somebody? Is that why you end up here? I don't know. It must have been. I'm like, were you walking by the Warner Brothers uh, commissary? Like, hey, you want to be in a Superman movie? Um, and it's funny, speaking of like being on the back lot, apparently Roger Moore saw Christopher Reeve in his Superman costume walk across the studio, and people were flocking around him while he was dressed as Superman. And then another day on the same back lot, he saw him walk across as Clark Kent, and nobody noticed him. Nobody paid him any attention. And it really was like a hammered home. Like, huh, you really can't tell. Just a article of clothing and glasses. You really can't tell. You can't tell those people are one and the same. Huh. That's interesting. Because Jerry Seinfeld always used to make fun of that. Oh, yeah, like, you know? <laughs> how, how, can you, how can you tell between here and here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, my brother-in-law wears glasses and, like, Whenever I see him without him, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, huh. it, it takes me a moment to really reconfigure your face in my mind there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even to the point, I think even Jamie's made that joke before where um, I think it was for the Real Fans episode for Kong Skull Island. Uh, the gentleman who played Dr. Dre in Straight Outta Compton was in that, and he had glasses in Kong Skull Island. And I think Andy pointed out the fact, like, see? Put on glasses, somebody you can't tell Superman is Superman. <laughs> See something to that. Yep. And so, before Lex Luthor's plan could go into action, uh, he sent a message to Clark Kent via ultra high frequency, and only. And I love the even I love the line of dialogue where he's speaking to Superman. Like anything that doesn't have four legs, uh, <laughs> only people with only things with four legs can hear this, except for you, of course. <laughs> and Superman finally gets to meet Lex Luthor face to face and uh, 
How do you feel about that scene of them finally facing off each other at the beginning of the third act? Superman crashing through the wall, everything tumbling down. Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor sitting very calmly behind the desk just looks and says, it's open. Come on in. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think that's, you know, that that's a great meeting because you really get this feeling of, you know, even if you would never read a Superman comic and you were not familiar with this at all, you could tell that these were, you know, two opponents going toe to toe. Um, I just think it's really well done. I think they bounce off of each other really, really well. Um, and I think, is this, is this the now infamous Otisburg gag in this scene yes. as well? Yeah. <laughs> and of course we get a great, we get a great Otis moment uh, <laughs> in it as well. Or even before Subban comes in and he's pushing down the door, it's like, I think he's here, Mr. Luther, as the door is bending in towards him. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's great. <laughs> and, and, of course, when Superman is revealing his plan and showing his new West Coast and Otisburg, <laughs> and just how indignant that Lex gets about the idea of Otisburg being in this new prime real estate area. <laughs> Oh, I love it. He keeps saying it over and over again, like Otisburg, <laughs> Otisburg. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, I keep saying it until you wipe it away. Like, all right, fine, fine, fine. It just smears the name away. And I think um, there was a reference to Otisburg recently. I think it might have been the last latest Arkham video game, the Batman Arkham video game. I had made a reference to Otisburg. Or something like that recently. Like they made like they there's a passing reference to Otisburg as a nice nod to this here. Um I even love the like even as like as silly as line as Superman says to Luther as like you would nuke half the the West Coast only a deranged mind can come up with that. Like that is a sixties Batman line if there ever was one. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> That's that kind of um you know, it, it, it was like that kind of writer's, um, I hate to use the word trope again, or, or, or you know, trick of, I'm going to have the, the hero tell the villain what a terrible person he is so that the audience will get what a terrible person he is. You know, if, if, if the hero is this upset and is calling the villain, you know, a warped mind, then the audience is really going to get it. Definitely, but like, if it would be a true 60s Batman moment if it was alliteration. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, like, you, uh, like, barbaric brain or something yeah. akin to that. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. that's pure comic book. That's pure wrestling as well. Like, so much alliteration in comic books. It's really astounding. But yeah, same, but oh, it works. Definitely. No, I was going to say it works, yeah. Um, and, but at the same time, all this is happening. We have Lois um, interviewing a Native American, kind of becoming the first podcaster right there because she's <laughs> tape recording this. And that, yeah, that's that's the true. first thought that ran through my head. Like, oh my god, Lois Lane, first podcaster. Um, and she's trying to dig into why all this land being bought up so recently, as well as uh, Jimmy Olsen's hanging out with the Hoover Dam, <laughs> but. Before the nukes can be, like, okay, I, I have to stop your question. It's like, 
when did we stop doing nuclear tests in the atmosphere? Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> I mean, I thought that I thought that stopped in the fifties for a reason. Where we realized, hey, do you know what? We are kind of messing up the place here. Like that's what that's something is kind of of a bygone yeah, era. Probably, probably they were going on unbeknownst to us in nineteen seventy eight. Is what they were getting at here. True. <laughs> that's probably that's probably the case. But before that could even happen, and before Superman says he could stop him, uh, Lex uh, tricks uh, Superman opening up the chest that has Krypton in it, and he wraps him in a chain, and he throws that around Superman's neck and throws him into Lex's personal pool. And there's a... Like this... It could so easily overacted this moment, like, oh, I can't... I, like... I have no strength to myself. It, like, for some reason, like, Star Trek acting is coming to mind. Like, OG car- Star Trek. Like, <laughs> like, oh, I can't do this. Like, I am so weak. Not to take anything away from original Star Trek. Trekkies, do not tweet at me, please. <laughs> um, but it is kind of, like, mean where it's like, hey, this one's going to San Andreas. Well, the other one, Hackensack, New Jersey. And Miss Tessbacher says to Lex, like, my mother lives in Hackensack. Lex just looks at his watch, just shakes his head no. Oh, that's so cold. That is so cold. But it it gives you a sense of who this character really is, you know? Um, and you you get to hate him for that, and you get to hate him for what he did to Superman. Because you're right, it would have been really easy for Christopher Reeve um, for that scene to be just overacting um, in, having that kryptonite around his neck, but he looks so in pain um, with that on and struggling so much that it's it's almost difficult to watch. Um, and it's it's so well done, and the scene between him and Miss Tessmacher where he's begging her basically to to help him. Um, that's that's a great scene between the two of them as well. And I think it proves that there's really not a bad performance in this movie um, for, from anyone. And they all act really well together. Yeah, and I think also, A, that he doesn't, he kind of, he yells her name to get her attention. But he doesn't yell at, like, Lex. There's no, yeah. there's no bite or, or hatred behind that. And then how she bargains with him, like, if you stop the the nuke going to New Jersey first. And he says, you will never lie. If you do that, I'll save you. And he's like, he reluctantly agrees. Yeah. And goes blasting out of the roof of Lex's uh, lair. Hey, there's some alliteration there for you. <laughs> um, much to the chagrin of Lex himself, the nuke, uh, he stops one going off in New Jersey, he sets it off into the atmosphere, and then he goes after the other one, which does go off, but... Superman does his damnedest to stop all the destruction happening to the West Coast. And I think it's a really, it's like, it's an awe-inspiring action sequence. How do you feel? Oh, I I feel the same way. It reminds me of, um, it's kind of terrifying to watch it. I remember feeling that way when I first saw it, because it reminds me of something out of one of the disaster movies, like, uh, like Earthquake. You know, where you really just you really feel the danger uh, there for the characters like Lois and the other characters um, and and just the the special effects of 
of the scene are are just pretty amazing, pretty awe-inspiring. Like you said, that's that's a good um, uh, good word to describe it. It's so funny. Before you, before like as soon as I pitched that to you, I just thought of the Towering Inferno just popped in my mind randomly. I'm like, yeah, this is a disaster movie sequence going on here. Yeah, and I think you know we were just coming out of that age of the disaster movies like Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno and Earthquake. So um, there, there's a bit of that in here, kind of that you know all star uh, cast. Um, and you know the, the kind of scope of it uh, and everything, and, and they add that sense of danger and realism that was in a lot of those disaster movies as well. And Poseidon Adventure has another great performance from Gene Hackman. So definitely, yeah, it all ties yeah. in. Yeah, <laughs> as well as Ernest Borgnine, but Ernest Borgnine can't help but make give great performances. So that is true as well. Um, it is, like, the one, like I mentioned before, like, Derek Mennings, who did a lot of the miniature effects for this movie, is, like, the one effect that he didn't do that kind of stands out is when the dam is broken and uh, Superman sends the rocks down the side of the mountain to block up the river from destroying the town. It's, like, one of the only times the effects really look a little dated because the miniature effects do not look that great it kind of looks like an episode of thunderbirds there <laughs> yeah it does <laughs> and, and like it, the scale is given away and that's that's the problem sometimes with miniatures and water like you have to shoot in slow motion to give scale and that time like yeah that looks like pebbles blocking up uh, a fire hose right there yeah it looks a little styrofoamy in in that scene definitely yeah i mean like it's the only time it looks a little you Nowadays, like, well, that doesn't look too hot there, but Superman's saving the train by becoming part of the rail himself. Like, that's classic right there. Mm-hmm. And even, like, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, because before every other superhero movie is destroying the Golden Gate Bridge, Superman is the first <laughs> one to do it <laughs> and save the, the school bus full of children. Of course, that that is quintessential Superman again, but in saving Jimmy... The one person he does not get a chance to save is Lois Lane and how he digs her out of the rubble of the earth swallowing up her car after the aftershocks and his raw guttural reaction is it makes my hair stand up every single time I see it. Yeah, I, I uh, that is that is so powerful. Um, you know. Every time I watch that scene, I still remember seeing it in the theater. It was It's so indelible that when he pulls Lois out of that car and, and he lets out that yell, you could hear a pin drop in the theater. And every time I see that scene, I can still, I can still hear the silence, so to speak, of the theater because um, it's just very powerful. Yeah. And I think it's the silence that makes that, moment work that it's so quiet and then it's just he lets out that roar and he flies off into to turn the earth around but before i get into that i want to talk about the flying effects really quick now uh zorin uh uh parasic i think i i probably butchered his last name i apologize he was part of one of the biggest reasons why the flying effects work so well because a lot of things they did, of course, like him, when it's Christopher Reeve on set, there's a lot of him on wire work, like landing and taking off, which, 
and he does it so naturally. It really sells the fact of him just um, bank and be with the bank left and right. But a lot of stuff with him doing a lot of uh, rear screen projection, where it's like him in front or front screen projection, where it's him in the front and the screen behind him is projecting plates of footage they've already shot. But how do you sell that him flying towards the screen? Like, of course, in the '50s TV show, where you've had just George Reeves in a mold standing in front of a screen, and they blow wind on him, and he's just flying stationary across these clouds and everything. It wasn't very impressive. And how they would did it for this movie is like, okay, they create a new system of synchronizing the camera photographing Christopher Reeve as well as the footage they shot earlier where they would time it. They were like, okay, we'll zoom in on Christopher Reeve's face and we'll also zoom in into the background and we'll have him synced up and it's called Zoptics. And so being able to go into a wide shot going from a wide shot to a close-up of Christopher Reeves and have the background be able to work at the same time is pretty groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, and and it was... I I thought it was absolutely amazing, and I still do. I think the practical effects in this movie are, are pretty incredible. And much like when you see Star Wars for the first time and you think to yourself... How did they do that? When you see this movie for the first time, and even multiple times, you, you do think to yourself, how, did, how in the world did they do that? You just describing it was the first time I had ever heard any detail behind the special effects of, of that. And when you hear that and you hear the detail and how creative they had to get with technology at the time to make this happen, um, makes it even more amazing to watch when, when you do see the film. Yeah, and the fact that a lot of the, the suit that that Christopher Reeve would wear at this time, because they also did a lot of blue screen effects, that his suit itself was green in order for him not to be keyed out and just have his head floating in space right there. So there's great behind-the-scenes uh, photos and footage of him just like in a green version of the Superman outfit. And it's like Star Wars and like Close Encounters. Like The effects that I think of all the time are... Superman flying effects. The the first time you see a Star Destroyer at the very beginning of A New Hope. Yeah. And then the mothership in Close Accounts of him coming it, it coming over Devil's Tower. Those are the effects that come to mind when I think of this era of movie making that still leave my jaw on the floor. Yes, I know how they're made, but I'm still wowed by them no matter how many times I've seen the movies. Yeah, you, you have a even more of a respect for the special effects uh, artists and technicians who worked on these movies. Definitely. And the, the, yes, the CGI has been afforded movies that be able to do things that never been able to do before. And I'm glad to be able to see those movies, but maybe it's just nostalgia talking, but there is something tangible that that is missing from superhero moves today that it's kind of lost by because of it all being digital effects there's not a lot of practicality in the movie making itself yeah yep now i don't want to get on a soapbox it's like you know it was better back in the day i don't want to be that person or anything i'm usually that person you know in my day let me tell you a half hour <laughs> story about it <laughs> and i'll just kick up my feet and i'll let, I'll let the next 25 minutes fly by but yeah, but I mean, then again, I am a hipster that I'll be, I've taken trains and gone 
hour or 45 minutes out of my way to see movies shown on a film. So maybe I'm not the best person to say that. But <laughs> then again, digital technology has afforded me to be a creative person. So it's a double-edged sword there. However, yeah. Superman decides to fly around the Earth despite the pleas of, his, of Jor-El saying, do not interfere with human history, and decides to turn the Earth around and turn back time. Now, this has gotten a lot of detractors over the years because, A, that seems kind of silly to some people. How do you feel about that? I think it works for the story. Um, and, you know, I think, it, I think it goes along with one of the, the movies... Um, one of the movie's messages, like I said, about how precious life is. And I think that's something that Superman learns in this movie. And I, I think this is based off of, you know, his experience with his father and what he said in that opening scene, all those powers. And I couldn't do anything to save him. And this is the character saying, I'm not going to, let that happen again. This is someone that I care about, and um, I'm I'm going to I'm going to save them. So I think it's a really well done scene. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of debate around, you know, whether the character would actually do this. Is this being true to the character of Superman? And I think you have to put a little bit of that aside and just kind of look at it for uh, for the sake of the movie. And I think it. I think it does create more of a bond and more of an emotional connection between Superman and Lois because of what he does for her. It's like one of the only few times he gets to be selfish. Yeah, exactly. And I think all the good deeds he's done, I think he's allowed that. But there are some people saying he should have some kind of penance for doing this in some form or fashion. And, but the, funny enough, this was not the original ending to the movie. The original ending to the movie, like I said before, how this movie was shot back to back, that he was able to save Lois in time and the nuclear weapon that he set up in the atmosphere would, would collide with the Phantom Zone. The nuclear weapon would go off and freeing the Kryptonians and it would end on a cliffhanger with the Kryptonians coming to Earth. Hmm. And him turning the Earth around would, was the original plan at the end of the second Superman movie to prevent him from doing that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but Warner Brothers wanted a stronger ending to this movie, so that's why the time travel thing ends up here and um, excuse me, and at the end of the second movie as well. So we do it kind of twice. So it is a little weaker in Superman 2, but Superman saves Lois when turning the world around and is able to be there in time. Lois thinks like, Wait, where's Clark? He's never around with Superman's. Ah, that's pish posh to that idea. <laughs> but you seem like you wanted to say something there. Oh, no, I was just, um, I was going to say, I think that's a good way of kind of winking at the audience in terms of how does Lois not put two and two together? You know, that Clark and Superman are never around at the same time then maybe they look a little bit alike. Like, how is she not put two and two together? And to just have her dismiss it like that at the end, um, I think is a good way of dealing with that. 
Right, and it, be, and it becomes a crux to her character in the next movie for sure. Yeah. And trying to prove that Clark is Superman. But, and the movie itself winks to the audience by the very last image of Superman flying into space and him breaking the fourth wall and winking at the audience before he goes zooming away. Yeah, which I, I, I always liked. I thought it was it was kind of the signature Superman ending. <laughs> you know, it became that for all of the, the movies, but I thought that was just a really uh, cool way to end it, you know, with, with him um, kind of smiling out at the, at the audience, almost like a thank you for coming along on this adventure, so to speak. It sends the audience out on a high note, especially accompanied with John Williams' score that I've praised up and down this entire episode. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the movie ends and became one of the biggest movies of all time and literally kicked off what comic book movies could be. And it set the bar so high that it's like, every, like I mentioned before, every comic book movie is measured up to this movie, but also anytime there's a Superman movie or any kind of Superman interpretation is compared to this movie for better or for worse. That my first question to you is, do you think that's unfair for any Superman movie or property being brought to live action because do you feel like that's unfair for them to be compared to this movie? Yeah, I think, I think it's unfair. Um, and my kind of double edged answer is I think it's unfair, but I think it can't be helped, you know, because this movie looms so large, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's kind of like if you were to make, uh, if there were to have been a, a whole bunch of movies made about, an alien that came down and befriended a young boy, it's always going to get compared to E.T. because, you know, that, that movie looms so large and was the first out of the gate, like Superman uh, was. I think you really do have to take each vision of Superman on its own terms and understand that it's its own thing and it's its own writer's and director's um, vision um, and and separate them as as best you can, but I think there's so much nostalgia and goodwill and um, people hold Superman, the movie so close to their heart that that's just so difficult to do, you know? Definitely. I mean, you have Superman returns in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, which is a love letter to the Donner movies and ignores the continuity of Superman's three and four. And, it's not, it's, I think it's hampered because it's so nostalgic for those movies. I think it's one of the biggest problems with that movies, but then you have Man of Steel, which, okay, let's go 180 degrees from what Superman is. Now, I enjoy the movie. I know people who love that movie, but I know people who hate it because it's the antithesis of this movie specifically. And it's kind of let a divide in comic book fans, which I think is kind of upsetting. Yeah, no, and, and um, you know, I think you're going to have that happen anytime someone comes in and puts their their stamp on something. I mean, this was um, Richard Donner and his team's vision of Superman, and Man of Steel is Zack Snyder's um, vision of Superman. And, you know, I think down through the years we've seen this happen with other characters like um, James Bond comes to, to mind just off the top of my head. And, you know, each one of them was that particular filmmaker's 
an actor's um, interpretation of that. And, and I know it's tough to put that aside when you've got that much love for a character and that much connection for a character. I'm guilty of doing it myself. You know, um, you go into a movie wanting to see the movie you want to see, not the movie that was made. Um, and sometimes you have to separate those two. And it can be tough. And I know, like, you say that to Star Wars fans, like, well, that this you should take it on its own terms. Like, no, it should be like this. And, like, I don't want to, like, say I'm just singling out Star Wars fans, but, like, it's one of those fandoms that's like, okay, if you're not X, Y, and Z, but if it's actually one, two, three, people get up in arms about. And it's, like, it's a minefield amongst uh, eggshells to try to make one of those. And it seems like something Superman is akin to that when it comes to interpretations of this character. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think it's the world we live in now with superhero movies and star Wars and the Harry Potter films. Now that, um, you know, that this, the fan base for them is so deep and rich and they know so much about it that, I mean, there are, there are fans out there that, have a story in their mind of what they want to see. And it's difficult when what's up on screen doesn't line up with that, you know? And, and like I said, I say this guilty myself of, of doing it. And I did it over the summer. You're talking about star Wars. I did it over this past summer with solo a star Wars story. I went into that thinking this is, this is the backstory of Han Solo and Chewbacca that I want to see. And that wasn't what was up on the screen. And you really do have to, separate that and say, okay, well, uh, this isn't the movie that I made. This is the movie that another filmmaker made. This is their interpretation of it. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's made these movies a very interesting world to be in, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, especially since these are adaptations that, like, or new iterations of it, it doesn't negate the original ones. Like, you can go back and watch them. Like you, if you say you don't like, some people say they don't like any of the Disney Star Wars movies. Fine, you have six other ones you can watch, plus a plethora of expanded universe things you can dive into. Like a lot of people who say who were not fans of Solo, like well, you have a great trilogy starting with the Paradise Snare that you can read and you can get your Han Solo backstory that you want, or you can write your own. I mean, yeah, just because this thing exists does not make it null and void any other iteration of it. I think that's, I think some people tend to forget that like, Oh, this is it. This is definitive one. No ifs, ands, or buts. No need to make any other ones. Like, well, no, I think that's why comics has endured for 80 years. I think that's why, as well as characters in literature, I think it's why Dracula or Frankenstein can, can endure or Hamlet can endure despite years upon years of passing of, but the original interpretation of it. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Yep. I mean, that's why I think Shakespeare will live on. I think it's why classical music will live on, despite iterations going on, so on and so forth, for generations. But if you can pick one scene or moment in this movie that, that you love, like that's the moment that you think of whenever you, or your favorite of this movie, what would it be? For me, it's probably the first um, appearance of superman where he saves lois from uh the the helicopter uh it, it, it's been shown so many times whenever 
they show clips from this movie, and for good reason, because um, it's everything you think of when you think of Superman, and yet it felt so new and fresh and such a part of this movie, and it's these two characters together, as you always think of them together, so that's, that, that's my favorite scene in the movie. I'm going to have to co-sign that. I mean, it is so wonderful. I mean, Henry Cavill, Superman, like his Clark Kent did the exact same thing near the end of last year's Justice League. I mean, Sam Raimi, another person who loved this version of Superman, had Tobey Maguire do the exact same thing, like ripping open his shirt to reveal the Spider-Man costume in the very first movie. It's a cornerstone of this character. And like I mentioned before, it just really i've seen this movie numerous times and it's like i'm seeing it for the very first time again and the sense of awe is still powerful in the movie despite how many times i've seen it It is something truly magical that i can't articulate without repeating myself as i'm doing right now no i think you summed it up really well It, it is magical it's one of those it's one of those rare moments of movie magic Definitely. Now, final thoughts on Superman the movie. I think, you know, again, you you summed it up at the beginning when you used the word touchstone, and that's definitely what this movie is. It's the blueprint for every superhero and comic book movie that's come afterwards. And I think the reason for that is because, like any good movie that's out there, it tells a really solid story with compelling characters with great scenes with great messages that um resonate with us personally and resonate with us in the world um and ultimately it is one of those movies that stays with you and becomes like an old friend and you never tire of it and you're always willing to watch it, and uh, that's why I think 40 years later, we're still remembering and talking about Superman the movie. I have to agree. I mean, like I said at the beginning, comic book movies, the genre would not exist the way it does without this movie, and so it's kind of hard to be able to say anything that we said this past two hours that has not been said a million times over. All we can do is do our personal spin over it, and I know recently people have been making their list of their top 10 favorite superhero movies. And I have, I've reserved the right to do that, putting it together because I wanted to rewatch this because it's gone back and forth. as one of my favorite comic book movies and rewatching it, reaffirmed that Yes, it's in the top 10. It deserves to be, if there was going to be a Mount Rushmore for important comic book movies, this would be on there along with the dark Knight or the Avengers or, <clears throat> the first Spider-Man, it's groundbreaking in its storytelling, and it's left an indelible mark on both movies and comic book movie and comics going forward. That if you've not <clears throat> rewatched it or seen it recently, I think you owe it to yourself to go back and watch it. Yes, put into the context that this was a movie made forty years ago, effects-wise, but turn off your phone, make some popcorn, gather friends and fr- family children whoever just like and just sit down and watch this marvelous movie here here 
Yes, I did use the word marvelous to describe a DC movie. That was not intentional, <laughs> but somebody's going to at me over there. Please don't at me. I mean, my, my voice is croaking because I, it's like the magnitude of this movie is, is, is sucking the energy from me. But, um, Michael, I want to say again, thank you for taking time out of evening to talk Superman with me. With me. Oh, this, this has been my pleasure. I'm glad we were able to, to do this, and I appreciate you having me on. Of course. Now, if you want people to follow you on social media and your other um, doings you know, on the Internet, where can they find you? Uh, well, as you, you said, Tim, I uh, co-host the podcast Disorder, every Disney film with Andy DiGenova and Hunter Fagan. And um, we look at every Disney animated movie. We review every Disney animated movie in chronological order. Uh, I'm on Twitter M Lions at M Lions FL, I should say. FL is in Florida. And I also have a blog, Screensaver, a retro review of TV shows and movies of yesteryear, which is at screensaver, uh, screensaverblog.blogspot.com. And I've been really enjoying your blog thus far, and I really look forward to whenever it pops up because I'm like, ooh, I, I get to read a really interesting article about either something I'm aware of or completely unaware of, and I get to learn a little bit every time uh, I read something. So it's, it's really awesome to see whenever you post something. No, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're always very kind to share it and retweet it. So I appreciate the support. Of course. Now, <clears throat> if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Timothy Rooney Two. my Instagram at T Rooney 1012. <clears throat> and much like disorder being part of the real fans for real movies, podcast network, I host another show that's part of the network. Please rewind along with Jamie Julian and Guy Milks. And we have a bunch of stuff coming away, and we have a little video coming up that's going to be promoting what the movies are going to be doing for this holiday season. And you can also find my other videos that I make on my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where Malay's short film podcast prompts is up. That is, there's no better way I was going to be able to tie all those things in together right there. So I may as well call it right there. There's no way I'm topping that. <laughs> but I hope everybody enjoyed this review of Superman the movie. And come back next time as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture here on the Anything Goes podcast. And we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>